Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Carol DiBenedetto and a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum and your chair for tonight's program. We would also like to welcome our listeners on the radio and we invite our audience to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. And it is now my pleasure to introduce you to tonight's program, Federal, State, and Local Policy Directions for Addressing Climate Change. Joining us today is a panel of experts who have been very involved in shaping climate change policy at the federal, state, or local level. First, I would like to introduce David Baker, who will be moderating our panel for tonight. David covers energy for the San Francisco Chronicle, writing about oil, gasoline, electricity, alternative fuels, and renewable power. He also focuses on local energy companies like Chevron Corp. and Pacific Gas and Electric Company. He previously worked for the Los Angeles Daily News and the Los Angeles Times and received his undergrad from Amherst College and his master's in journalism from Columbia University. Our thanks to David for moderating our discussion tonight and for fielding the questions from the audience. It's my pleasure to now turn the floor over to David, who will introduce tonight's panelists. Thanks, and uh, thanks for coming out here tonight. Uh, before I introduce the panelists, let me sort of sketch out how we're going to do this here. I'll introduce each of these folks sitting up here to, to my left. Then each of them will get about five, seven minutes or so to, to make some introductory comments. Then we're going to go straight from there into question and answer. While we're doing all of this, if you've got questions that you would like us to address, please go ahead and write those out on the cards. They're going to be collected periodically and brought up to me here. And I'll basically sift through them and pull some out and just start firing them at the panelists as we go. Um, hmm, good point. Okay. Do we have some more? Okay, excellent. First off, uh, to introduce our panelists, let's go left to right. Down at the far end, we have Severin Borenstein. 
Professor Bornstein is the E.T. Grether Professor of Business Administration and Public Policy at the Haas School of Business and Director of the University of California Energy Institute, where he is also co-director of the Institute's Center for the Study of Energy Markets. He received his A.B. from UC Berkeley in 1978 and his Ph.D. in economics from MIT in 1983. His research focuses on business competition, strategy, and regulation. He's published extensively on the airline industry, the oil and gasoline industries, and electricity markets. His current research projects include empirical and theoretical work on competition in gasoline markets, market power and pricing issues in restructured electricity markets, strategic pricing and financial distress in the airline industry, and the incentives of firms to cut costs and improve efficiency. Bornstein is also a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He served on the Board of Governors of the California Power Exchange from 1997 to 2003, and during uh, 1999 to 2000, he served on the California Attorney General's Gasoline Price Task Force. Sitting immediately to his right is John Busterud from Pacific Gas and Electric Company. Since 1985, Mr. Busterud has been the Senior Environmental Counsel for Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which he serves one, which serves one in 20 Americans in terms of its service for electricity and natural gas. He manages PG&E's environmental practice, which includes climate change initiatives, corporate acquisitions and business transactions, international insurance claims, air and water quality and hazardous materials compliance and remediation, plus legislative and environmental policy matters. He's also the lead attorney on the company's climate change team, responsible for developing and implementing PG&E's compliance program for AB32, the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006 here in California. He has worked with trade associations and legislative staff and has testified before the California legislature on energy, superfund, and environmental justice legislation. Mr. Busterud also co-chaired the Environmental Policy Task Force, responsible for creating PG&E's first environmental corporate policy and annual targets. He prepared the utility's first annual environmental report. President Bush recognized those efforts when he awarded Pacific Gas and Electric Company the first Presidential Environment and Conservation Challenge Award. Also, Mr. Busterud is a decorated lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve and was deployed to Iraq from 2005 through 2006 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And finally, his father, a while back, was president of the Commonwealth Club. Sitting immediately to his right, we have Melissa Capria. Melissa joined the San Francisco Department of Environment's Energy Division as the Climate Action Coordinator in September of 2005. Her responsibilities include quantifying greenhouse gas emissions, tracking significant developments in climate policy and science, coordinating interdepartmental climate work, and conducting outreach to the residents and businesses in San Francisco. In 2006, she led the effort that established San Francisco as the first local government in the U.S. to certify its greenhouse gas emissions with the California Climate Action Registry. Prior to joining the department, she worked for five years at the ICLEI, Local Governments for Sustainability, on the flagship Cities for Climate Protection program. She also has worked for the city of Burlington, Vermont, coordinating the development of the city's local climate action plan, and has held positions at the Sierra Club and Greenpeace. She has a BA in political science from the State University of New York at Oneonta. 
Is that Honiata. Honiata, sorry about that. And a master's in international environmental policy from the Monterey Institute of International Studies. In December 2006, she completed Al Gore's Climate Project Speakers Training Program in Nashville, Tennessee. And finally, immediately to my left, we have Michael Gelobter. He is the president of Redefining Progress, an activist think tank dedicated to shifting the economy and public policy towards sustainability. He has served on RP's board of directors since 1995 and was the executive director from July 2001 through November of 2006. His prior experience includes being a professor at UC Berkeley, Rutgers, and Columbia University, co-founding the Community University Consortium for Regional Environmental Justice, as well as several grassroots environmental justice networks. Also, a Congressional Black Caucus Fellowship with the U.S. House of Representatives Energy and Commerce Committee, and being the Director of Environmental Quality for the City of New York. He presently serves on the boards of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Ceres, the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, the Budget and Fiscal Policy Education Steering Committee, the Telluride Association, the Environmental Leadership Program Advisory Committee, and the Next Generation of Defining Progress. So these are our panelists. We're going to start out, uh, again, left to right. Uh, each of them, as I said, will get five, seven minutes or so for an introductory comment, and then we'll go into questions, including the ones coming from you in the, the audience. Professor Bornstein, uh, kick it on off. Thank you, David. Um, I just learned when you did that I'm going first. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let me try to set a little context and raise a couple of questions uh, for the climate change discussion in California. Uh, I come from this on the energy side, which is certainly where most of the problems come from in terms of climate change. And when we talk about energy and climate change issues, there's just a lot of confusion. This was brought home to me actually uh, a couple months ago by the Financial Times, a pretty respected newspaper, which ran a headline after Bush's State of the Union address saying uh, Bush proposes expanding strategic petroleum reserve to address global climate change. Uh, I'm glad I'm in an audience that knows to laugh at that. Uh, but it, it was pretty stunning, the confusion of the issues that are surround our use of energy. And the most common confusion, of course, is the confusion between the geopolitics of energy and the environmental issues. And of course, riding on top of that, of course, is the cost of energy and the concern that it costs just too damn much. Uh, and unfortunately, the debate about climate change often gets clouded by the confusion with, for instance, the need to reduce it's often stated as oil imports, uh, but of course, if you really want to address uh, geopolitics, you would just reduce oil use, period. Um, but setting that aside and figuring out which issues are really relevant to the climate change debate itself, I think, is probably the first order of business. When you do that, the first thing you have to recognize is that this is a global problem, and ultimately the solution has to be a global solution. Uh, we really are not going to address climate change in California. California emits 2% of the greenhouse gases. If we stopped emitting greenhouse gases, it really wouldn't fundamentally change the situation if nobody else did anything. So we really have to be going for an effect that is actually scalable, uh, can be copied, can serve as an example to the rest of the country and ultimately to the rest of the world. Um, Climate change itself, I think, is the greatest 
international challenge we have faced, certainly the greatest environmental challenge we have faced, the sort of local pollutants, NOx and SO2, uh, mercury, et cetera, are really minor issues compared to this because the scale of coordination across government entities that is needed is just dwarfs anything we've ever dealt with. The only thing that's roughly comparable is dealing with uh, chlorofluorocarbons back in the 70s and 80s and the Montreal Protocol, which actually led to a very uh, uh, effective control on CFCs. Unfortunately, that was a really minor hit to the economy. This won't be. Dealing with climate change is going to be very costly if we are really going to reduce our production of greenhouse gases. So then you have to ask yourself, well, then what's California doing, or even more locally, what are cities doing when they try to address greenhouse gases? And I think the answer has to be they have to be doing it for the purpose of generating more a bandwagon effect that other places will climb on board. But nobody's going to climb on board. This is a classic public good problem. Nobody's going to climb on board because it's in their own private interest. They can, are only going to climb on board if they feel that they need to, to help control this problem, to either be a good citizen or because there's enough political pressure on them. And in the end, of course, although it's all too easy to make China the boogeyman, China is not the boogeyman, but the whole world is going to have to cooperate and China is representative of the problem we face. That is, China is putting out more and more greenhouse gases, is building coal-fired power plants that do not have environment, the hope of environmental mitigation at a very rapid pace, and we are going to have to figure out how to address that. Uh, when you see the problem that way, I think it's pretty daunting, and unfortunately, my time's up, so I'm not going to tell you the answer. No, I, I, I don't have a we solution, can get to it. but I think it is a, I think it is a big challenge um, in how we are going to get the worldwide cooperation that is needed. Uh, people talk about, well, it's in everybody's interest to go along, but China and developing countries certainly have a much different calculation than we do because we are a very, very wealthy society already, and we got that way producing a whole lot of CO2. And I think they would rightly say, wait a second, now you expect us to cut back our CO2 level from a level that is dwarfed by your CO2. And in case you read the headlines a couple weeks ago, yes, China is going to pass us in CO2 production in the next few years. No, they are still going to be nowhere near us on a per capita basis. We will still be well over four times the CO2 production per capita than they are. And let me just close with one further concern I have that's going to come about in the next couple of years and is starting, if you read some press already, and that is the debate that we're going to see betwe between the mitigators and the adapters. Uh, ultimately, the deniers are going to have to stop denying because there is going to be just overwhelming evidence, and that's happening. But unfortunately, there is a pretty clear path for the deniers, which is that they're going to become adapters. They're going to argue, well, it's too late to actually do anything about climate change, so we better put our resources into minimizing the impact on us. And I think this is going to be a, sort of the real ethical challenge of climate change, the climate change debate, whether the United States is going to say, well, it's too late to really do anything about the world. 
we're going to start building dikes and relocating people and doing the local adaptation things to minimize the damage and put our focus more in that direction. And unfortunately, that's a much more tangible action one can take to minimize the damage than reducing this colorless, odorless gas that, is, that has an effect only decades from now. And I worry a great deal that that is going to be a much more political sal politically saleable approach than the responsible approach of actually reducing our production of greenhouse gases. Thank you. Thanks. Mr. Busterud? Thanks, David. And uh, Severin, I don't have the answer either, but uh, let me perhaps just change the perspective slightly and um, move from the, the, the broader themes that you articulated, which are all certainly valid and, and present great challenges, to maybe the perspective of a utility or energy company lawyer who now is um, doing his best to advise uh, PG&E on how to be certainly an active player and part of the solution in addressing climate change, both at, both at the federal and state level. And um, as, as you're aware, California has stepped out on this issue last year uh, enacting uh, AB 32, the, the nation's first uh, uh, greenhouse gas control statute. And uh, I am part of the uh, the scene, if you will, and the scene is a fairly broad one. It, it extends from um, the Public Utilities Commission here on Van Ness Street uh, uh, to the Energy Commission uh, in Sacramento to uh, the California Air Resources Board to the Governor's Office to a number of different cities and, and localities around the state. And uh, we are all engaged now in helping to develop uh, California's regulatory program uh, to uh, control greenhouse gas emissions. And AB 32's target, if you will, and uh, stated in, in the law, is to uh, reduce the, the state's greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020, which some characterize as approximately a 25 percent reduction uh, from current levels. Um, I am fortunate to work for a, a I think, a great client. Uh, the company has, has long um, been a supporter of uh, energy efficiency and clean energy technologies trying to do our best to reduce the carbon intensity of the, of the power we provide. And uh, we are actively engaged in Washington. Our, our chairman, Peter Darby, has testified uh, recently in front of Congress supporting a national uh, cap-and-trade program to control greenhouse gas. Um, certainly not the entire utility industry is not there yet. Um, and, uh, again, we are... Uh, blessed with an energy resource mix plus customer energy efficiency and a lot of the programs that California has pioneered that, that put us in a, in a unique situation here where we hope that greenhouse gas control will not affect, for example, service reliability or impose large uh, costs, compliance <coughs> costs on our customers. But that, uh, that is our goal. We want to be, uh, contribute uh, our fair share of reductions. And it is, uh, I would say, at the uh, – I just to touch perhaps just briefly on some of the regulatory issues that are facing CARB or the California Air Resources Board. We, we shorten it to CARB just because everything would just take too long if you said it every time. But, but in any event, there, uh, the, one of the most interesting issues under, under AB 32 is uh, the, the statute's goal of preventing leakage. In, in carbon emissions, and, to, and I'm, I'm sure most of you understand what that means, but if, uh, if there is a hard cap imposed on California utilities, and uh, investor-owned and, and municipal, um, one, one 
uh, possible solution that an enterprising company might come up with as well as we'll just shut down all our in-state plants and buy power from out of state and and uh, that'll that'll solve the problem but this is of course global warming not California warming and so the AB 32 recognizes that you have to control this leakage issue uh, and uh, that'll be one of the the challenges facing the, the air resources board as to how to do that in, a, in an equitable manner and in a way where we can really understand what the uh, imported power represents in terms of carbon emissions so you make sure you control it both in California and that we control the emissions associated with our customers use of power when it comes into the state uh, I think another another um, issue that's of, of great importance to us is that we certainly want to do our fair share and be part of the solution and, and offer uh, offer uh, positive alternatives um, for meeting the state's goal, but uh, we also are concerned that every sector in, in our economy contribute its fair share. As, as Severin was noting, it's it's you know to get everyone to step up simultaneously, you need a statute, and we've got one now. But I think there also needs to be the recognition that that uh, unlike the national. Uh, uh, percentage of emissions. Uh, energy emissions in California are approximately 20 percent and transportation sector related emissions, and this is according to the uh, California Climate Action Team, are about 40 percent, so roughly twice, twice the energy sector. Um, that reflects to some extent the fact that California utilities have been leaders in energy efficiency and have pushed our, or have kept per capita consumption or per capita greenhouse gas emissions uh, fairly stable, and I can't tonight point to a PowerPoint slide, but I would just say that compared to the national average, our per capita carbon emissions are very, are much lower than that national average. But we want to make sure that, that the, the solution here is, across, is achieved across our economy and that no single sector bears a disproportionate share of, of the cleanup uh, obligation. And um, there, we believe that a market has to be designed properly. Uh, we certainly want to work with the state and, and all the stakeholders to see that the market is designed in an efficient manner but is not, again, does not impose burdens on any, uh, disproportionately on any sector of our society as well as any sector of our economy. And perhaps others will talk about that, that distinction uh, as well because certainly it won't, it won't just be the emitting or generating parties that, that are affected by this statute. It's, it's, it's everyone in the state of California, and we have to make sure it's done fairly. So thanks. Thanks. Ms. Capria? So I'll add yet another perspective, which is from, from local governments. Um, you know, essentially, local governments are really, in my view, on the front lines of addressing many of the sources of, of climate change. Um, you know, we do everything from enforcing building codes, promoting energy efficiency, recycling, managing transit. We're also the level of government that's closest to the individual energy user and consumer. In addition to that, we are the, the level of government that has to immediately deal with the impacts of climate change. Um, you know, we provide the first response responders in extreme weather events. We deal with the day-to-day -day implications for public health, for the economy, for the infrastructure. And one illustration of this in San Francisco is if you look at what they're predicting for California, um, the impacts on the Sierra snowpack, the range of loss of Sierra snowpack is from 30% to 90%. 
that range is dependent on what emission scenario we come up with. But ultimately, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, which is responsible for providing water to more than 2 million customers in the Bay Area, you know, may be able to respond to a 30% reduction in snowpack, but, but 90%, that's going to present uh, a tremendous <laughs> challenge to us. Um, my position it really deals more on the mitigation side of things. It's really tied to implementing San Francisco's greenhouse gas emission reduction plan, which came out in 2004 and is tied to a rather aggressive reduction target that, that we set. And just, just briefly, kind of the story of setting that reduction target is, is interesting. Um, before It was adopted by the Board of Supervisors in 2002, um, but prior to that process, staff from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission had to go before the, the San Francisco Commission on Environment and explain to them what are reasonable targets and um, what the options are for, for a city to do in terms of a target. So, of course, um, you, what you want to do is be aggressive and push the envelope, but also come up with a target that's credible. But this being San Francisco, um, that discussion kind of turned into a debate between the very nervous staff that was going to have to come up with a plan to, to reach a target and the commissioners who were pushing for a 40% reduction below 1990 levels. I think you mentioned that the state target that was set is just to reach 1990 levels by 2020. This would have been by 2012. Um, fortunately, the staff prevailed, and I want to recognize Danielle Dowers, who's here and actually was the manager on that project, because my job's a lot easier now since our target is only to reduce emissions by 20% below 1990 levels by 2012. Um, the, t the types of things that we're doing uh, across energy and transportation and waste, we're promoting renewables, we're looking to efficiency in our own operations, looking at our vehicle fleet, uh, promoting biodiesel, promoting energy efficiency in the public and private sector. Um, there's a, a whole range of activities, a zero waste goal. We're looking at tidal power under uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. But with all that and all the work that we're already doing, we estimate that we're really only on track to, to maybe meet a Kyoto-style target, not necessarily that 20% type reduction. And the shift that's really going to have to happen on that front is going to come from the city out to the community. So what we're starting to look at now is how do we get businesses and residents to really take, take part in this. Um, and I think in particular, behavior change um, with residents is, is a very big challenge that all the cities are facing that have taken on these targets because while there's a lot of organized programs that address businesses, um, you know, PG&E has set aggressive targets, uh, a lot of other organizations have set ag aggressive targets, I don't think residents are quite prepared to make the type of changes, or I don't think we yet understand what those changes are going to take on a residential level. So on that front, what we're moving towards is doing more aggressive uh, public education and working with the, the business community. Um, that being said, going back to Professor uh, Borenstein's comments, I absolutely agree that if San Francisco does this, even if we achieve our target, it doesn't mean anything if, if 
it doesn't happen all over the place. But the good news is there's over 400 cities in the U.S. that have formally committed to meeting Kyoto-style reduction targets, and globally there's even you know there's there's hundreds of cities, and that isn't just um, in the developed world. That's in places like India and China, where their per capita emissions, you know, are maybe maybe two tons per person, or, or sorry, two pounds per person, if that. Um, and they're still, you know, making commitments to do this stuff. So cities do have a tremendous amount of power. 2005 was the first year that more people in the world lived in cities than in rural areas. And um, we, you know, we have a really great network and we're moving forward. And it, um, I think it absolutely complements the efforts that are happening at the state level and the international level. Kyoto, the reduction target for Kyoto um, for the U.S. would have been to reduce emissions 7 percent below 1990 levels by 2012. We used the 1990 baseline also and the 2012 target when we set our San Francisco target, as have many uh, cities that are participating in these types of programs. Great. Thanks a lot. And finally, Mr. Golubter. Good evening, and, and thanks to all, all my colleagues who are in the audience and on, on the panel as well. Uh, let, me, let me start by saying that I think that there's actually the only thing hard about climate change is the politics. I think the policies and the life uh, that we get when we address it are uh, better, easier, healthier, and safer. And I don't think we should allow ourselves to continue to be hoodwinked into believing that the activities we're engaged in with fossil fuels that are destroying the planet and our lives and the lives of many people around the world are easy uh, by comparison to the kind of world we'd be in if we address climate change seriously. So to heck with gloom and doom from my perspective. I'll cover a little bit more about that, but let's let, why are the politics hard? Well, if you want to stop a doubled CO2, 70% of proven reserves of fossil fuels cannot be used. One of the groups we work with, the Environmental Justice and Climate Change Initiative, says stop oil, exp oil, oil, oil exploration. One would think that was a radical claim, except we can't use 70% of what we know is in the ground if we want to not bake the planet. So it's actually a pretty mild thing that actually preserves a lot of, uh, a lot of land and a lot of people's livelihoods if we do it. Another way I like to describe the problem is the job on climate change is to shrink demand for the product of the world's most profitable companies. The market capitalization of ExxonMobil competes on an, average, on an average day with the market capitalization of the entire world auto industry combined. The job is to shrink demand for their product, and no, we can't be nice about it and say they should shift their product because that would be dumb. They're the most profitable company in the world. We have to kind of put them out of business. That's why the politics is hard. That's who's sort of fighting this. That's who we have to deal with. So policies, then, with respect to this. I do think that it, this, this is a policy, and our research at Redefining Progress for the last 15 years has shown that this is this, that you can, you can achieve good climate policies in the United States and actually achieve a modicum of growth in the economy at the same time. If you're addicted to something, as the president says, we're addicted to oil, when you break that addiction, you all of a sudden have a lot of money left over to spend on things that are better for you than flaring natural gas out of the tailpipes of SUVs. The strength of the U.S. economy is not in the energy sector. With all due respect to PG&E, in fact, PG&E's greatest strength, in fact, has been their diversification into energy services out of pure burning of fossil fuels. That's why they're a strong and healthy company. When we take money out of the fossil fuel sector and put it into things like high-tech services and other things in which our economy is strong, you see not for, it's not fertilizer for the economy. We don't have like a super-duper better economy, but we have a, an economy that on average is slightly better. 
And the economics on climate change is a little bit like the science was about 15 years ago. The answers are clear, but there are some powerful doubters, like all the guys on the payrolls of the people who are making a lot of money off of our oil addiction right now. So essentially, a policy has to have two core components, efficiency and equity. Uh, first of all, let me say that climate change is entirely whole hog, not just a moral problem, but a justice problem. It's about having taken from future generations, about having taken our share, uh, take, and this present generation and the generations before us haven't taken an extremely disproportionate share of the world's atmosphere. If the U.S. were using on a per capita basis its fair allocation to emissions of CO2, we'd have to shut the economy down in the second week in February. That's what we'd have to do to actually be fair in terms of our emissions today into the global atmosphere. From an efficiency perspective, it's critical that we use uh, market mechanisms. And there's lots of market mechanisms, the most popular of which now is known as cap and trade. But the real trick is in being equitable. Because the fact is, in one of our models, we showed in a 500-sector model of the U.S. economy that only 13 sectors do worse if you actually try to reach the Kyoto Protocol and other aggressive measures to address climate change. The key is to make sure that the, the benefit that you get from doing that is actually spread across those 487 other sectors. It's critically economically, it's critical for citizens um, that we not do something that I call paying the pusher for the cure. We don't want to be paying oil and coal companies to use less of their product. We don't want to be in that business. So we have to avoid those kinds of measures for businesses. All the businesses that don't burn fossil fuels intensely will do worse if we pay the pusher for the cure, and our citizens and our people will do worse. And all you need is one bad oil price shock. I, I love AB32, but if it ends up, at, it could end up, like deregulation did in the state of California, if it's implemented in a way that leaves too many trap doors or loopholes for companies to come in and raid our pocketbooks. So I don't like the word cap and trade because it implies that we're going to give, the reason people are into trading is they think the polluters think they're going to get this giant allocation for free. I believe in cap and charge. You cap for the pollutant, you create a market mechanism from cradle to grave for greenhouse gas emissions. It actually lets you implement a lot faster because you don't have to grandfather anybody. You don't have to say, oh, what was their last five years of emission? Let's create a baseline. You just say, what did you emit this year? Please pay for it. Very simple, very, very, very straightforward market mechanism. I'm, I'm almost running out of time here, so I'll just say I think, Severin, I do have the answer, and I think a lot of people do, um, blessedly, at the federal level. It involves aggressive re renewables programs. It, aggress it involves aggressive efficiency. Most importantly, it involves burying fossil fuels. I'm not saying we're never going to use fossil fuels again, but we are, it's very, very hard to convince people to invest intensely in solar thermal, in wind, at a macro scale. If you're a utility executive, I can't ask you today to make a 30-year investment in macro-scale renewable energy when you know that Jeb Bush's son could be president one day 10, 15 years from now and say, let's open up the coal fields of Wyoming again. Oh, by the way, it's a national security emergency, and they don't have to sequester either. You have to make a, send a clear and unequivocal signal. That stuff's not coming out of the ground this generation. We're going to go a different way to power ourselves and reevaluate in 20 or 30 years when we've gotten on the right track. I love AB32. It's an amazing piece of legislation, incredible opportunity. I urge everybody to pay attention to it, to participate in it, and make it the powerful engine it can be for making California a leader and a better place. Make sure that no one walks in the back door and steals it, but so far, it's the, the deck is stacked heavily in our favor. Finally, at a local level, to talk about local policies, really it comes back to the, to the core answer at a, at a global level, which is we do have to change our lives some. We have to start, you know, LA, San Francisco has to become more like Paris than like L.A., as it grows. We have to come to value the, the value of holding our kids' hands on the way to school, our partners' hands on the way home from work, more than being in that car, really, and driving and getting that crick in your neck and everything else. 
And I don't think adaptation, unfortunately, is an answer because there are actually worse worlds than a doubled CO2 world. There are worlds in which we use 500 years of coal, which is what we have. There are worlds in which we choose to go with breeder reactors in a world where proliferation is hopelessly broken, and eventually we have a tactical nuclear weapon going off every six months. We are at war right now over oil. The world we can choose to go to is a much better world than it is even today. And that's, the, that's not just the hope, that's the reality if we can break this addiction and move towards the light. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <coughs> All right, we're going to move into the, the Q&A session. And I think let's start by going in the direction that a lot of y'all were starting out in. Um, let's look at AB32. Let's look at national efforts to possibly do a cap-and-trade system. For those of you who haven't been following along this stuff, cap-and-trade basically is a kind of system where the government would set up a market You'd cap the level of CO2 emissions that people within your market were able to, to emit. And then essentially they get to buy and sell credits for how much of this stuff they'd be able to emit in the future. What is the right structure for this kind of market? You know, we've, we've watched the Europeans do it with some successes and some failures. What, how do we actually build one of these things that actually will work? Anyone want to jump in on that? I mean, you can use the cell phone bandwidth auctions as a good model. Auction mm -hmm. permits for greenhouse gas cap and then just sell the allocations, um, have the highest bidder be able to go for it. People will pay for what they need to use. That's, a, from my perspective, the most politically interesting because you don't use the tax word and the one that is, um, is most, it's equivalent to it. And, yeah, it's equivalent to a charge. Um, it's and, even uh, equivalent to a tax. Yeah, I don't, I don't use that word. <laughs> um, I, I agree with Michael entirely. I think that uh, we really do need to go to a cap-and-trade, and there's no reason particularly to grandfather the rights. The fact is that CO2 is a pollutant that's hazardous, and we've now recognized that, and there, there shouldn't be any particular property right to anybody for u producing CO2. That said, I think the politics of that are pretty tough. Uh, the people who would be hurt quite a bit by that have a lot of political clout, and getting a pure cap or pure cap and charge through, uh, I think, is going to be pretty difficult politically. Now, just to make sure I understand what you're talking about, when you say a charge, are you talking about essentially the government setting a price, saying we think a pound of CO2 is worth well, this? Let me make the distinction. A tax sets the price, mm -hmm. and the economy chooses the quantity. A cap and charge or a cap and trade sets the quantity, and then the market ends up uh, deciding what the price is going to be. And I think that although those are equivalent under cir some circumstances, there is a lot more uh, support for a cap-and-trade system. But I think that's in large part because a cap-and-trade system generally comes with grandfathering for, uh, for the previous users. And as long as it's we're going... the present polluters. The, the <laughs> present polluters, that's right. And, um, you know, we have now discovered that producing CO2 is hazardous to the health of the planet. And so the question is, how are we going to address that? And what are the appropriate allocation of those property rights to emit CO2? Mm -hmm. Mr. Busterud? This certainly, uh, the auction fee allocation is certainly going to be a... a significant issue in, in terms of market design and how the state's program is, is set up. And I, I think the questions we have to look at to make sure that, that whatever system we have, whether it be an, an allocation 
or an auction or perhaps a percentage of each until we can best figure out how that how the system can how we can work into a glide path to get to 2020 without significantly shifting costs from one sector of the economy uh, to another uh, we have to make sure the underlying market works as well uh, because we do and I, I didn't bring it up initially but but having been through the um, uh, the deregulation time as as a as a PG&E employee, it certainly and, and as a as a Californian, it's not something we want to repeat. We want to make sure the markets are transparent and functional, and that we don't have a uh, a price fly up like like we've had in the past. And so, um, and certainly you have you have that potential risk either under an auction or, or an allocation. But I think it's something in terms of overall design. And I'd be very I'm very interested in what you know, the, the market experts have to say and the lessons we could learn from Europe and the Reggie experience in, in New England. Ms. Mm-hmm. Capria, any thoughts on this? Uh, I would just say that we design it very carefully. <laughs> it's <laughs> ultimately what it comes down to. I mean, there's a lot of room for, for corruption and for um, things to go wrong. So fortunately, we do have this example from Europe to look at. And um, I think there's a lot of watchdogs paying very close attention to what's happening here in California. So um, I think we're on the right path, but we need to continue to be cautious about it. I, I, if I can just add one thing, the European example is actually an example of how not to do it in terms of uh, the quantities. The price of, your, of tradable permits in Europe is very low because essentially it's a non-binding standard, and that sort of teaches us something. Cap and trade is not a solution. It's a mechanism. The solution is reducing CO2, and if you're going to put a very constraining CO2 limit on, it's going to have a high price. And if it's going to have a high price, that is going to show up in the way we live. I disagree with Michael that we can do this uh, without any harm to the economy if you compare it to the non-existent possibility of just going forward and living the way we've lived the last 50 years. We are going to take a hit relative to that because something we have been pretending is free isn't free, and we're going to have to start recognizing that. Mr. Golobter, are you shaking your head there? Yeah, one of our former board members, a uh, Republican member of Bush 1's uh, Council on Economic Advisors, is just wrapping up a paper where it turns out that there's actually a completely non-regressive energy price increase involved with climate change because the efficiency boon to low-income families is so great when you actually cut their dependence on fossil fuels that it offsets the traditional um, regressivity of oil energy increases, interestingly enough, in a, in a cap-and-charge system. Let me also say just about California, it is possible for California to do this on its own, um, uh, to have a cap-and-charge system on its own. You have something called border. Basically, all the fossil fuel used in California comes through six mechanisms that are already financially regulated, very tightly financially regulated. Um, and so you can implement a charge system in California that works. Um, and so that every electron in the state carries the same charge. It comes in, um, and then you rebate um, the uh, – um, you, you keep basically the coal-fired stuff that's coming from out-of-state costs more than the stuff that's generated cleanly in-state, which increases the incentive for in-state generation and job generation in the state and creates a lot of additional wealth as well and forces the surrounding states to clean up their act as well. And it's probably the only thing we can protect against uh, the interstate commerce clause on because you can't really just say we don't like your dirty power. You have to have a market, evenly applied market mechanism that says, look, every electron in the state is carrying this charge, and then you'll be defended against leakage and other things. So there's some really optimal ways to design it where California can go it alone and get a huge benefit in terms of international competitiveness and model building and stuff like that. 
You know, the, a couple of people in the audience asked a really basic question that we should probably back up a moment and, and address. Um, why do cap and trade as opposed to just a flat-out carbon tax? It's purely politics. Um, there, is, there is a technical argument that if you know the quantity you want to hit, the right thing to do is fix that quantity and let the price float, because if you set a tax, there's some uncertainty. But basically the reason is when you say tax, people jump through the roof, and this is tricking them. Um, and that's what it is, because it is a tax, and it will raise the cost of energy. And, you know, uh, Marty Feldstein, an uh, advisor to many Republican presidents, has proposed a tradable gasoline permit system. Uh, he, of course, would never endorse a gas tax, being a good Republican, but he would endorse a tradable gasoline permit system. You know, this is just trying to trick people. Um, and it's unfortunate, but the fact is the electorate, by and large, uh, will not agree to anything that looks like a tax. And unfortunately, when the price of electricity and gasoline and everything, energy, goes up, they are going to be pretty unhappy. And that's why I have a much less positive view of the potential future than Michael does. Now, Michael thinks that we can get this all, I think, or a large part with energy efficiency. And on paper, that seems to be the case. They can get a lot. Unfortunately, on paper, it seemed to be the case 20 years ago. And the progress on energy efficiency has been pretty slow. What you do is you take the charge. And I, I mean, a tax is, is, you know, if you look at the, even the history of the word, right, it's something the government does to you. This is a use fee. This is a, it's a charge. You're saying to people, look, you're putting something nasty up there. You're going to have to pay for it. And then guess what? We're going to take the money you're paying for it and use it to build mass transit systems and use it to help small businesses become more energy efficient and use it to build new infrastructure that's high, much more efficient and weans us from the problem. That's how you get the win-win. In 1997, we assembled more economists at Redefining Progress than have ever signed any statement in history. It's called the Economist Statement on Climate Change. It allowed the Clinton administration to go and sign Kyoto over the objections of these industries. 2,500 economists, eight Nobels, taking action on climate change would be good for the U.S. economy, be good for the California economy as well. I don't use the word tax because I, I think it's really a polluter pay system that we have to talk about. That's the, the onus lies on the people dirtying up the atmosphere. It's not about the government like tax, taking an increment of their earnings. It's about them paying their way. Will they agree to be charged for it, though? Hell, well, PG&E might, but nobody else will. <laughs> well, that PG &E? wasn't a gauntlet, but I think, the, uh, I think one of the realities, and, and, and being a lawyer, of course, I don't have to worry about politics or science, but uh, <laughs> um, except every day. But um, I, I, think, I think one of the challenges at the federal level to get a program through uh, is, you know, just flat out, there are 38 coal-intense or coal-dependent states that, that, have, that you have to convince, I wouldn't say trick, but, but convince uh, that there's something in it for them, that this is a, it's, it's part of a long-term solution. And, and that's, a, that's a piece we aren't dealing with at AB 32 right now, but it is, it's a reality. And I, I think that's part of the resistance to the, the T word, I suppose, but uh, again, that's it's it's just a it's part of the challenge. We hope there is a federal system uh, and soon that can be you know harmonized with California's uh, system. But uh, you know, that's my two cents. Ms. Capria, uh, I have nothing you more to add. <laughs> well, I mean, on the local level, you certainly have to deal with. I mean, I can relate to why you wouldn't want to use the term tax, but so, again, I think this points to a shift in people's consciousness, and it's great 
to see people out getting educated on this stuff and trying to understand these issues because ultimately that's what we're going to need to mm -hmm. to you know move forward in this stuff we're going to need people ready to do things that maybe they wouldn't consider um right now or in the past thanks um a couple actually a number of people in the audience have asked sort of variations of the same question and it ties into what you mr globter were just saying about efficiency a little while ago when we look at trying to come up with a, an energy system that produces less carbon dioxide how much can we count on efficiency how much can we count on biofuels how much can we count on hydrogen which of these things will pan out and what are the, the pros and cons there probably do this day-to-day -day more than I do. Um, hydrogen is not an energy source. Repeat that, please. <laughs> hydrogen is not an energy source. Hydrogen is not a solution to any problem we have right now. Um, and we really need to understand that. Um, there are some alternative energy sources that are making great progress, and I am the public skeptic about solar photovoltaics, so that isn't one of them. Um, it is it's making great progress, actually, but it's still very, very expensive. I used to be a public skeptic about wind, and wind actually has gotten into the economic range, and I think that's fabulous. We're making great progress on central station solar thermal, which is still twice as expensive as gas-fired generation, but PV is four times as expensive, so it's getting into the range. Biomass is getting into the range also, still much more expensive than even wind. Um, so... We're making progress on all these fronts, and all of these are very carbon-reducing or zero-carbon energy sources. Unfortunately, what we're spending the most time talking about these days is ethanol. And ethanol is a slight carbon reduction. Probably the best guess is it's a 10 to 20 percent carbon reduction when made from corn. And that's what's getting the press. And that's just not progress in anything like the range we need to be making it uh, if what we're worried about is uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so we really do need to shift to the high impact for what we're going after approaches. And that means not focusing on corn-based ethanol. And it also means not spending $3 billion slapping solar photovoltaics on people's roofs when they cost four times as much, not four times as much as conventional fossil fuel, but four times as much as alternatives, and, well, two to three times as much as alternatives we have that are renewable fuels. Anyone else? Uh, I mean, I think ultimately what it comes down to is people really want there to be uh, one answer to this, and there's just not. There's no, no silver bullet not to use a military Mm. <laughs> Wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, it's going to take everything, and it's going to take being smart about what we're doing, not throwing a lot of resources behind, you know, stuff that's not going to pan out in the long term. Actually, let me add one final thing. What I skipped over because you were, I was saying about energy sources is energy efficiency, and that is sort of that's the low hanging fruit. Um, we waste so much energy that could be cost-effectively saved that we really need to be focusing very strongly on that. And one of the great puzzles is why that continues to be the case, because there's actually money to be made by corporations and consumers being more efficient that they're still leaving on the table. And uh, one of the things we're doing work on at the Energy Institute is trying to figure out the economics and the behavioral aspects of how people invest or don't invest in energy efficiency.
And I would say you, you certainly see energy efficiency as a key component of almost every federal statute that's that's emerging. And, and, and again, it's a it's a series of multiple options that people that the legislators are looking at. And, and we've you know there's there's more to be had in California. I think if, if you look take a federal approach, there's definitely a lot a, a lot to be done there. Mr. Globter? I think I, that was pretty, pretty good set of answers. Okay. Before we go on to the next question, I want to basically remind our uh, listening audience out there on the radio uh, what they're listening to. This is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you're listening to a program entitled Federal, State, and Local Policy Directions for Addressing Climate Change. Uh, to go back into the questions that are coming up from the audience, there are a whole number of people in the audience, apparently, who are interested in something called community choice aggregation. <laughs> I thought I was going to get one of those. Um, Basically, this is a, a system whereby municipalities can have a far greater hand in buying power for the people within their borders and actually determine where that power comes from, what kind of sources. Um, this is something that San Francisco is pursuing, correct, Ms. Ms. Capria? How close are we to it? Um. Just work. <laughs> it really is not a topic that I have focused a lot on. I mean, I think what what needs to happen is um, there needs to be care, really careful thought given to how, how uh, community choice ag aggregation actually pencils out. I mean, the hope for it is that if you could go that route and you know produce you know public power from renewable sources. Um, that you would be in good shape, but I think the, the the important thing is it's not as easy as that, and that um, we really need to pay attention to the details and go through that process of determining whether this is something that pencils out for us. And I don't I don't know you know you hear different things all the time about where where we are at in that process. So mm -hmm. I'm as interested as the folks in the audience um, in how this is going to progress. Mr. Pusterud, we've. Uh PG&E has, has usually fought pretty tenaciously to keep customers within its fold uh, in the past when they've been interested in joining other or finding other ways to buy power. What do you guys feel about community choice aggregation here in San Francisco and elsewhere around Northern California? Would you oppose it if the, the city proposes it? Well, actually, I have to be honest. I am not. Uh, I understand that as our, our that in general that we we have concerns about that, and it's we like hanging on to our customers. I mean, they mean a lot to us, and um, what, that's why we, you know. Did what we did as much as we could to hold customers in the in the Sacramento area in the last the last election. So it it's very important to us. And I actually I couldn't have answered it better than you did. And I hope I hope, I hope my sitting next to you didn't uh, didn't affect it. But there is a lot that needs that any community would need to look at. Yeah, don't that that, um, that it, the devil is always in the details. And and I think, however, that it I mean we we certainly want to be responsive to to every customer and to every community and we have embarked on an initiative working closely with the city of, of San Francisco um, on the the green the city initiative and working with a number of different cities although I think that the relationship with San Francisco is more advanced than with other cities but but looking at looking at what the potential is both in terms of greenhouse gas reductions and other environmental issues that we can partner with our city customers if you will to help them to help them uh, reduce their environmental footprint so I mean, in recognition of that issue I think that's that that is probably one of the drivers so I hope I hope that we can we we've been working with the city on the the tidal power proposal for example um, and i I've actually seen the animation of that proposal. It looks, it looks somewhat interesting, and, uh, and I hope we can pursue something like it. But uh, I guess that's, that's the best answer I can give right now is to endorse what you said. So, 
You know, one of, the, one of the reasons people are interested in community choice aggregation is trying to bump up the amount of renewable energy that we use in the mix and in the grid around here. California, of course, has a requirement coming up that uh, we want 20% renewable power by 2010. Um, I think the state is somewhere around 11%, 12% right now. Does that sound right? What, what kind of role can that kind of state regulation have in actually improving renewables around the country? Is that an important thing? Is that a, a minor thing? Is that sort of a sideshow to creating a, a cap-and-trade, or can it really be a driver unto itself? Actually, um, Jim Bushnell and Catherine Wolfram at the Energy Institute just finished a paper looking at both the cap-and-trade and other forms of renew- or regulations towards renewables in California and have concluded that the RPS, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, could be a huge driver towards renewables. And, in fact, if you really met the RPS, uh, the, the AB32 standards that for greenhouse gas reduction, depending on exactly how the border issues and leakage issues are handled, may not be binding at all. The problem is that we are not on track to, re- to meet the RPS standards. PG&E actually is on track, I believe, but uh, Southern California Edison isn't and San Diego isn't anywhere close. Uh, so California is, I think, making good efforts to move towards greener energy, uh, but it, the fact is that the renewable portfolio law actually has an uh, outlet that if it gets too expensive, you don't have to meet the goal. And, in fact, we are likely to bump up against that constraint before we actually meet the standard. And the problem is, I think, that we're running in against, and we do it with community choice aggregation, is the fact is renewable energy costs more if you don't count the environmental effects. And so for people to be willing to move towards a community choice aggregator who's going to tell you that most of your power comes from wind, if they're really going to do it, and they're not going to fraudulently just reshuffle resources, um, it's going to cost more money. Uh, The Berkeley, Oakland, Emeryville community choice aggregation has come out at times with statements that they would would only raise costs by 1%, but uh, I think those just aren't credible. The fact is that a community choice aggregator is unlikely to be tremendously more or less efficient than PG&E or utility. And so if you decide as a community that you want a whole lot more green power, you can get it through community choice aggregation, but it will raise the power bills. Mr. Golubter, you were shaking your head there for a minute. <clears throat> I, I mean, I think RPSs have been a great uh, initiative, and this is a really a, a long-term policy lesson for us working on climate. This, it's a, we're going to be working on this issue for a long time. Our kids are going to be here 50 years from now. And a lot of the best ideas of 10, 15, 20 years ago are now being passed with better ideas. And RPS, I think, frankly, is starting to, you know, as much as it's still a big push by, in my community, the NGO community, it really doesn't make as much sense in a world where we're taking climate change and renewables really seriously. It's, it's sort of a set-aside program, right, for renewables. Oh, let's make sure that part of the portfolio is renewable. Right? No, actually, let's make sure that fossil fuels pay their way. Right? Let's make sure we're, you know, let's talk about a zero carbon portfolio. Right? So we have to kind of put the foot on the other shoe and start seeing where, again, the world's most profitable companies have just a little bit too much subsidy, a little bit too much of a toehold on our imagination, and we feel ourselves kind of one down because, oh, we want to be part of the portfolio. Our, re- our energy supply needs to be made from inexhaustible renewable resources in the long run, 
period. That's where the whole portfolio, that's not just the portfolio, that's where the whole supply needs to come from, whether it's at a community level, at a national level, or at a global level. That's where we have to go. And so a part of it is I like RPSs a lot. I think they're a good driving mechanism, but they are kind of a stalking horse, as Severin's saying, for the price issue. And a lot of times we're, we're kind of, again, one down because we're sort of saying, well, it's, you have to do it. It's in the portfolio, but it's more expensive. Well, why don't we just say it's more expensive? Why is it more expensive? Oh, because the parts of the war that are because of oil are not part of what we're paying at the pump, right? Oh, because we're, we've had a 150-year subsidy. And besides, so what if it's more expensive, right? Our, how much is the price per kilowatt hour in California right now? I'm not really, I should be more on top of it. I get a monthly bill, but what is it? It depends how much you use. Okay. Somewhere between 12 and 31 okay. cents. So the, the, the cost of nuclear power through 1975 was $15 per kilowatt hour. And through the, early, and through the late 80s, it was 75 cents per kilowatt hour. That's what we paid to get nuclear power. So I don't see why we can't actually, you know, pay a little more for energy that's better for us. And by the way, suck, stop using as much of it so that we're actually saving money at the end of the day. We used to say in the 80s, the, 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 char, the rate's going to go up, but the bills are going to go down. And that's pretty much held true for California in terms of our per capita bill. Anyone else want to tackle that one? Okay. Um, I think we're drawing to the uh, close of the program. No, yeah, well, I think we've got a little more time. There's um, one of the, the people in the audience just sent in a card that actually pointed out a big portion of this conversation that we haven't even addressed yet, and that's the transportation sector. We've talked a tiny little bit about biofuels up to, up to this point. What, um, what technologies do we have hope for of fixing the carbon problem there? I mean, there's two ways to approach transportation. There's in the technology and the, the vehicles themselves, and then there's um, moving to, you know, alternate modes other than single occupancy vehicles. So from the city's perspective, we're coming at it from, from both angles. Where And if you take, for instance, the, the Muni bus fleet, um, you know, we're, we're building hybrid diesel buses into the fleet we're moving towards biofuels but we're also looking at the the municipal transportation system and trying to determine what's the smartest way that we can increase ridership um, you know but whether it's bus rapid transit um, in the Geary corridor or on Van S how do we also I mean even better than buses is riding and walking so also how do we look at our community and determine how do we make it more more walkable um, and I think really aggressively going at both both pieces is um, what what we have to do thanks anyone else uh, I, I think that we the Part of this clearly has to be in a city planning and uh, beyond city planning. Uh, the reason so many people commute so far now for, to their jobs is because gasoline got cheaper and cheaper throughout the 1990s. And in fact, the lowest price in gasoline in history adjusted for inflation was in 1999, since the beginning of gasoline. Uh, and that's why there are big SUVs, and that's why there are people driving two hours to and from work. But when we're, what we're, is in the public debate about the solution when we get past the city planning issues is biofuels made in ways that really are not very effective in reducing greenhouse gases. And that's not just corn, corn ethanol. Even sugar-based ethanol is not that effective because when you ask, well, how are we going to solve this problem, we're not going to solve this problem by California using some uh, ethanol-based uh, fuel. 
if nobody else can. Now, these other systems, the systems that are being used right now, corn-based ethanol in particular, is not scalable. It is not, it cannot be scaled up to anywhere near the level one would need to affect climate change. So if we're trying to address this problem, we really have to address it from a completely different direction. That direction is probably, in the end, going to be generation of power for, for, for cars is going to be generation of power in another site that is through electric cars and storage or fuel cells of some sort. And then that means more efficient storage. And unfortunately, the technology of energy storage has been very slow moving and really has been disappointing. I hope it's going to move more quickly, but it's been frustrating. And renewable energy generation of the electricity to begin with. And that's ultimately where we have to get to, and I think ultimately where we will get to, but unfortunately it's not something that's happening in the next decade. So I, I really like Severin Bornstein a lot, so I'm not <laughs> doing this for dramatic purposes. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, um, the, people aren't driving two hours to work because the price of gasoline is cheap. People are driving two hours to work because we have built a society where we separate from each other, where we don't want to live near people who don't make as much money as us or live near as, uh, us. It's a big debate, and in, in, in there's a big debate in urban planning about this, but 80% of the people think the reason people move to suburbs is to be near people who look like them. Well, the price they pay for that is they get in their car at 7, and they get to work at 9. Then they, ca- they get back in their car at 5, and they get home at 7. That's four more hours where they're not holding their kids' hands. That's four more hours where they're not reading or educating themselves or getting exercise or feeling better about the world. There is a better choice. It's very simple to make. Take the, take the school to bus with your kid one day and watch them ask you to do it every, all the time. They don't want to see you in the rearview mirror. They want to laugh about who's on the bus and what's going by on the street. Google made a big case that, oh, my goodness, look, we have these buses. Look, you have a great job. You can get on a bus in San Francisco, ride an hour down there. Why don't we move Google to San Francisco or to San Jose? And I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. The Google bus program costs about as much as the annual, about half the annual budget of SFMOMA. We could build a new, brand-new, amazing, world-class museum and actually make the city a better place where people could go on lunch breaks from Google. <laughs> Sweet. Anyone else? Well, I won't even... I can't, res- I can't respond to that. It's the uh, it's a wonderful thought, but uh, the uh, I just wanted to underscore again, maybe bring us back down to uh, down to the issue of, of AB thirty two implementation going forward. It's very important, I I believe, that all sectors of the economy play a meaningful role in addressing, you know, in, in reaching California's target, and the transportation sector. Uh, I don't have a silver bullet for it either, or even a full metal jacketed one for that. <laughs> but a, uh, uh, but it, obviously the low carbon fuel standard is one part of the at least what's being proposed. But again, as as, as Severin and others have said, it's it's changing a mix of an existing fuel. Uh, it's it will produce, you know, and for different estimates, but uh, you know, ranging from 10 percent of of the overall reductions that are required uh, to something a bit higher. But again. Transportation sector, at least in, in our state, is is forty percent of that of that pie, and we and we do have to do something about about it and and uh, and ensure that everyone does their fair share. By the way, just to be clear on what's going on in the sector, President Bush uh, suggested a twenty percent reduction in fuel use relative to some standard. Fifteen percent was going to come from using biofuels. And that is a completely unrealistic goal. And 5% was going to come from improving fuel efficiency 
standards, and that's a laughably low goal. And so, I mean, we just seem to have our priorities in this area just completely out of whack. I think we've got time for one last question. Uh, another one coming from the audience. Several people in the audience apparently are plug-in hybrid fans, and this sort of goes to what you were talking about with uh, basically some kind of electric car that charges up from the grid at night. How close are we to that being a solution? Is that feasible and something that we could get working on right now? And how much of the problem would that solve? Well, we are we are certainly big supporters. Of- Supporters of plug-in hybrids, <laughs> but but and and we certainly and people talk and I'm not to not to push it away from the question, but I keep coming back like a, sort of a one-trick pony to how do we get to AB32's targets? There are a lot of other great suggestions of like port electrification um, and um, other uh, electrifying certain other dirtier portions of our economy, but we have to remember, and this is why plug-in hy- hybrids seem like such a good solution. To, to us is that you're plugging in and recharging at off-peak hours. Yep. And that's, that's, uh, that's a big part of the solution. Uh, I, I believe that when we look at port electrification, there will be some issues we'll have that our economy will have to address or address from a regulatory standpoint. How do you handle then under AB32 the increased emissions associated with that, electri- that increased electric use? You know, you're producing a net benefit, but then you shift the compliance obligation to the utility as a result of of being part of that solution. But we are definitely supporters of plug-in hybrids and would be pleased to provide further information on what percentage of the solution that may be, but we we certainly want to be part of that program. Anyone else? Uh, Just quickly from the local government perspective, you know, part of what cities do is act as, uh, you know, models and test out, you know, new technology. So we are in the process of applying for grants to do a few conversions and and incorporate a few uh, plug-in hybrid vehicles into our fleet. And that's true for local governments all across the U.S. There's a number of local governments that have put in um, soft orders for plug-in hybrids for when they're available. So um, we, we see it as part of the solution. I, the plug-in hybrids are unfortunately still expensive, and they are coming down, and they do rely on the storage technology, which is getting better. Um, but it, but they also represent some interesting issues that come up when you start going to using electricity. Uh, yes, it is true that they charge off-peak, and it turns out that's good in California, that off-peak energy production tends to be less carbon-intensive. That's really bad in most of the rest of the United States. Off-peak energy production is coal. It's to the extent that you switch and produce more energy off-peak, you actually increase utilization of coal plants, and that is not what we want. So it is important to think through the full cycle of energy use when you start uh, going down this road. Uh, you know, the California's attempt to move in the late 90s to zero emissions vehicles, which failed, uh, never could have succeeded because those vehicles were never zero emissions. They were just zero emissions out the tailpipe. Ultimately, this is going to be important because if we get some sort of carbon capture technology, it isn't going to be on the back of cars. It's going to be on power plants. And that's when the plug-in hybrid attraction really kicks in, I think. Or not even pl- not even hybrid. It'll just be plug-in cars. Mr. Golopter, um, yeah, I would just I would just say car you know cars are not really the solution of any of any kind. You got to you know, I mean we it's a it's an important step in the right direction, but you got to focus on holding your kid's hand and taking the bus and 
doing all the stuff that lets you read while you're transporting and things like that. A plug-in hybrid bus. A plug-in mm-hmm. hybrid bus would be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing against them, but we got to look big picture. Excellent. Great. Well, our thanks to all the speakers tonight and our moderator for leading this discussion. We also thank our audiences here as well as our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club commemorating the 103rd year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.